welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome to another edition of Inside the Firm. I'm your host, Alex Gore. I am here with Trevor Bullion. Uh, in 2000, he founded the Caribbean Office of Cooperative Architecture called Coca-Cola, if I'm saying it correctly, and he'll correct any mispronouncements that I have because I sure I know I have one coming. Uh, <clears throat> so this was in Grenada where uh, he is originally from. Under his leadership, the firm went on to become an award-winning architecture and planning consultancy with successfully completing more than 30 residences commercials, and institutional projects, including Grenada's new House of Parliament. Most recently, he was a senior associate and director of operations at Snow Krylich Architects. Uh, you can correct that if that's not uh, the right way of saying it. Um, and that firm was a recipient of the 2018 AIA Architecture Firm Award. Then at Dunwoody College of Technology, uh, he became the Dean of the New School of Design in College. Trevor, welcome inside the firm. Thanks, Alex. That was a, that was a mouthful. There's like a lot of really tricky uh, names in there. I didn't think about that. Yeah. So is it, was, is the name correct? The two architecture firms. So uh, Snow Krylik is the name of the firm that, uh, that, I, that I was at uh, before this position. And then uh, we would we refer to the firm as Coco. Coco. Spelled C O C O A, like, uh, yeah. Yep. And then it's Julie Snow, right? Julie Snow's firm, correct. The firm that she founded um, and, then, and then is with Matt, Matt Krylik, who's, who's a, a partner. Yeah. Uh, the amazing work. Actually, both firms do do amazing work. So, congratulations on, on all of that. Um, could we just rewind the clock and What's what's kind of the relevant parts of the stories of, of you growing up in Grenada and deciding to become an architect and mm -hmm. and, and getting into st starting the first your first firm? Oh, sure. I mean, I think that um, so I went to college in New York City. I went to City College in New York um, and worked for a couple of years. Then went to uh, Harvard GSD and came back to New York uh, and was working. Right. So um, I'm working in a firm like so many young people. Um, yeah, at the time, the economy was reasonably good, and we we're all trying to get ahead, right? Like, I think felt like everybody was trying to, like, either move to a firm that was a, maybe slightly more prestigious or move to a firm to make a slightly little bit more money. And I was definitely in that category, really trying to think about, like, how do I, how do I break out of the pack? Um, and my cousin Brian, um, who's a graduate of SciArc, had moved back to Grenada. Um, and I'd just been talking with him, like, hey, like, you know, how's that going, you know? Um, and we started talking about like, hey, maybe we should try to do something. Um, and so we did. We we totally on you know just on gut instinct alone. We had no clients. Um, I cashed in my chits. I cashed in my my savings. I purchased a plotter, computer. <laughs> um, we rented an office space. Yeah. Um, and we we went at it. We just kind of. You know, we got the first one of our first clients was just somebody we met at a bar, and they were like, you know, they lived on a boat, and they were like, hey, you know, 
we don't, we're thinking of leaving the boating life behind and we're gonna we want we're gonna build a house and we're like great and but you know brian brian met them he came back he's told me about it and i was just like okay like we had no phone number we had no you know what i mean they yeah just, yeah like like is this thing real like you know what i mean and then and then you know they, they later on they came and they stopped by the office and um you know we got that done but yeah that that was sort of my impulse for for for, for starting my own firm uh with, with my cousin brian what did so once you okay did you have an office in like one of your houses or did you guys rent a space so we we rented a space like so when we, we decided to get it going we, we we got the business cards and all that stuff and like i said we're just a plotter but we were at home for about a month and then, but during that month we were looking for space and yeah. so we found a space you know on the cheap um we were so like fearful of like you know what would happen if it went bust we kind of uh we really did a great sell job on um, uh, convincing a young uh an interior designer who was also doing her own thing to join us just you know not not to join our firm but to, to like share space with us yeah so the three of us like you know we had this uh this little office space um and uh, yeah that's how we got got going and then once you you know, got the office space, got that first client who, you know, like sometimes everyone's sharing everyone's role because yeah. you have to do everything. But was there one, one of you was a marketer, one was a designer, or how did you specifically go across? Like, did people just walk in? Did you put a sign up that says architects? We, <laughs> architects we here. Up, we, we did. And so I'll tell you something. We, you know, you, sometimes you get incredibly good dumb luck sure. so the place that we uh we set up in grenada is a street called lucas street and the beautiful thing about lucas street is that it's close to the courthouse and um and most lawyers have their offices in lucas street well we often would have people who were on their way to complete the sale of deed for their land literally leave their their lawyer's office and and swing by us and be like oh yeah we just purchased this property with the with the intention to uh build a house and yeah. so um and then we developed a little bit of a relationship with some of the lawyers where they would you know they would recommend us um and so it was like just like i said totally dumb luck but that was definitely one of the things that helped us out uh, in the going. so what would you say if you would have put your office somewhere else, it would have made even a harder slog. I think so. I think so for sure. Wow. That's a, that's a great, I'm trying to think of like, should someone open their architecture firm right across from the planning department? Yeah. You know, uh, something like that. Yeah. And, oh, because I was thinking like, okay, where are all the real estate agents located? But they're at home. They're all over the place. In the planning department, I'm sure a lot of people, I'm thinking about Denver, right? They walk in, they're just a, a homeowner or someone and and they're naive in the in the most beautiful way possible mm -hmm. and they walk in there and they realize holy cow this is a nightmare bureaucratic system i'm heading into walk out dejected see a sign of architects and then um and oh okay i'm going to talk to lance about this i know some i know someone who owns a building in the parking lot awesome yeah up there so sorry to sidetrack this but um you got me going it, it was that your main thing did you then 
at that point or later develop um was it initially a website or did that come later um i'm going to share my screen here just so people that are watching on youtube can see because right now it's a beautiful website oops uh beautiful work did you, did you start that right away or or was that after you had some breathing room no no that's that's where we started right away i'm not seeing the uh website though on the uh on the screen oh there we go yeah there we go it was on the right yeah okay and so um you know when i uh when i relocated uh to uh to minnesota um back in 2016 brian you know has has continued has kept the firm going yeah fun stuff yeah um awesome awesome great firm why why did you go from grenada to minnesota some people would say the weather is different the weather is, is a little different <laughs> um you know i i meet so many transplants now that i'm here in minnesota and i you know and out of curiosity and i think a lot of people ask me the same question like why you know why do you decide to land here and the, and, and the short answer is almost always the spouse and so my wife is is from minnesota um, her her parents uh, need a little additional support as they as they settle to the age, um, and we felt that we wanted to, to be able to, to be there to support that. So uh, that was the that was the thing that, that took the skills. Awesome. Then you got a job at a firm uh, here. It's a yeah. mid-sized firm. Um, what was your role there? What what are some challenges of you know like a small to mid-sized firm that you see that I think a lot of people are struggling with. Yeah, you know, so I, I got to the firm when the firm was maybe about, I was maybe employee number 19-ish. The firm had, had experienced uh, some pretty rapid growth. Uh, that firm is probably uh, in the 35 to 40 person range now. And so I, I sort of came right in the, right as the firm continued, was in this uh, expansion mode. Um, and I wasn't uh, initially hired to do operations. Um, but a few months into, I think I started in September, and it was right around the holidays. So let's say right around Christmas, New Year's time. Um, the person who was doing um, operations at the time decided that uh, she was going to move on. She wanted to expand her family, and she decided that she uh, was just was going to resign. Um, and uh, Julie Snow and Matt Freilich, uh you know, approached me about taking on that role, you know, and again, I just was like, yeah, you know, I, I mean, that's sort of my personality, but also I just was like, yeah, sure, you know, let's give this a whirl. I mean, I'm not sure that I fully, I had a full appreciation uh, for all the, all, all the nuances, you know, it's a little bit of, because I continue to work on projects, right? So I'm still managing projects, but, you know, staffing, you know, at a, at a, a mid-sized firm is really, really tricky. If you um, had to define, if you had to define what uh, an operations manager or director for a mid-sized firm, you yeah. know, not not that they had this laid out when you started it, but mm -hmm. right now, how yeah. would you define that role? So, you know, one of the ways we used to talk about it a little bit was like the, the manager of the project managers. Right? You've got all the all the projects that kind of uh, uh, all sort of running, and they all have their own life. Um, but somebody needs to kind of make sure that they're all tracking the way they should be tracking 
uh, for the open, for the global bottom line, the global cash flow, right? And so there's an aspect there. Uh, and then that person is also uh, sort of in terms of staffing, as I mentioned, is making is trying to make sure that the right person uh, is in the right uh, seat for each project, right? And that can be really, really tricky um, because sometimes uh, somebody's already started on a project and they'd be fantastic for this new project, but they're already taken, they're already right. And so it really does become a little bit of a three-dimensional chess. Um, there's some regulatory things, you know, to deal with like liability insurance um, and things like that as they relate to projects. You know, we did a lot of public work. Public work has different compliance aspects, uh, particularly as it relates to fees that need to be maintained. So, you know, I don't know. I always just sort of describe it as the grease. The grease is trying to keep the, the whole machine running as smoothly as possible. That's a great way to put it. That's a great way to put it. What are some issues that these firms might be running into that you see? And especially to like staffing, um, and you might have some better better insights, cash flow, you know. Yeah, I'll say one of the big ones for mid-sized firms in particular has to do with the scale of projects that they can do, right? So I think when you're a small firm, you're always going, you're always hoping for that one big project that, oh, if we could just get that big project, that multi-million dollar project, those big fees that's going to, you know, the design is over two years and that we can really kind of, you know. And I think that, when you hit a mid-sized firm, you typically start to get a couple of those projects, right? You typically have one or two in the firm at any given point in time. The challenge really becomes when those projects sometimes, if they're developer-driven, they go on hold, or there's a long review process. You know, so if you're if you're a 30-person firm and you've got these two projects with like, let's say they've got a six to eight-person team, one or two of those things go on hold and your whole financial model is turned upside down. Like the really big firms have a dozen of those. So they, 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 can, buff, they can take that buffer much, much better. Um, but those mid-sized firms, that's a real challenge. So you're big enough to get some of the big work, but when that big work kind of hits a bump in the road, you really, really feel it. And that's, I think that's really one of those really, really big ones. Um, I, I think that's huge because I'd, uh... I, I think that's a, the the fallacy that a lot of people have is like, hey, I just need those big projects, right? Yeah. And I want to get more of those big projects and I want to get rid of all the little ones, which I totally understand. It, it makes complete sense. But your point is spot on the nail. What are you going to do when you have a firm of even eight yeah. and you have one big project and you only have two or three very small projects and that big one stops? Those little projects aren't going to, Payroll comes every month or twice a month. month. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we were talking earlier before we started recording about, about the 08 uh, recession. And we, uh, Coco, uh, as a firm, I think, I believe, uh, one of the things that helped us get through that was that we, were, we had a startup mentality, right? We fairly quickly got into the position of being the number two firm on the island. Um, and the bigger firm on the island was getting a lot of the projects that we really wanted, a lot of these bigger develop, you know, big hotel resort developments, sure. right? They they didn't do as much little work, you know, like, hey, I want to do an addition to my house. 
Um, and we, we always had that sort of startup mentality where we were always, we were taking anything that we could get, you know, because we, we just had that mentality that we're, we're getting started, we're getting going. And when that recession hit, all those big projects went on hold. Yeah. And the only thing left were these smaller projects. And I think that larger firm was known as the folks with the big stuff and they would never touch the little stuff. And so even people who might otherwise have been inclined to maybe go to them, just felt like, well, they, they don't do that big stuff. So, I mean, they don't do the little stuff. And so I felt like we were, we were able to really stabilize um, the firm during those really bumpy periods because we continued to do a lot of the little stuff. Uh, and we were still well equipped to do it. Yep. Um, and I think too then, circling back to that um, kind of operations manager is necessary to know to kind of balance out what's happening at, at a firm. When do you think that's necessary? When should a firm pull the trigger on having not, uh, uh, an operations manager? That's a really great question. I mean, I would say that once you hit about 20, you know, and again, you know, I was in a role where I was doing that, but I was also doing projects, right? So I was still running projects. So, I mean, I think a lot of firms just think, oh, well, we can't afford the overhead, right? I mean, I think that's always that sure. big. Like we can't just have a person who's sitting there and that we're, you know, other than like marketing. And I would say that the same thing for marketing. You know, I don't think it's a coincidence that, that, that uh, you know, Snow Product saw growth when they finally were like, you know what, we should probably have somebody dedicated and focused on just going out there and responding to RFPs um, and doing that. And they did that probably around that 15 person mark. Yep. And that's what precipitated really that you know that that growth it, uh, it's it's crazy yeah. looking and chasing projects gets you projects yes For, exactly. groundbreaking <laughs> thoughts right <laughs> here inside the firm but but you know you i think when you again when you're a startup you're so hungry you 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 you're so scared of overextending yourself that you won't be able to i remember when we hired our first employee mm -hmm. and i was we would we were sweating buckets. This idea that we were going to have to pay this person, you know, every month, month after month, no matter what, right? And our productivity went through the roof, right? Because when you're just starting out, when you, you know, when you're, uh, when you're, when you're doing work and drawings, you're not chasing new work. And when you're chasing new work, nothing's happening on that project, right? And so yep. all of a sudden, just having one person who all they did was production. It was like, you know, it, it's obvious in hindsight, but in that moment, we were so scared of the responsibility of having to pay somebody. Um, and our productivity just went through the roof, our, our cash flow improved. Um, and it was just, it was just like, duh, why did we wait so long? Yeah. I, I want to transition. You're the dean of the, uh, is it called the new school of design or is it just called the school of design? The school of design. Okay. Like there is like, I forgot what it was. Yeah, in the new, new school. York. Yeah, yeah, in New York. So I didn't know if you were doing that, the new no. school. Um, so we've been talking about business a lot. And almost because of the firms that you worked at and kind of throwing under the rug, you know, design. Because I think school teaches design the best. Because you're in competition with your students. You have a professor that critiques you. Um, and I think teaching business is the hardest and teaching code <laughs> is, 
is the hardest because I mean, there's just so much nuance to it. It's hard to be sticky with that information. You know, when you design, you draw something, there's a there's an effect. There's an effect on the renderings. When I say something about business, there's no feedback loop with the student. Like you can just yeah. make up, hey, you're gonna make more money if you hire someone after 10 people to go after more work, you know? Um, but I still wanna ask this question. How how are you how, how are deans and other people thinking about business in a school of design and and i haven't even asked the, the question like is is the school of design just architecture is it other things involved but i'm sure you've been around the block enough to you've been to colleges you've been to multiple different colleges how do we integrate and how much should should we integrate business into these design programs. So, uh, so the school of design that that, uh, that I oversee has a, has a interior design uh, department, graphic design, and architecture. So we have three disciplines uh, represented, and all of them, of course, have some, you know, some sort of business uh, um, uh, curriculum related uh, to the sort of the business of of, of making stuff, right? That we do. Um, I think where we have gone wrong is that we have, I think, rightly um, uh, put emphasis on studio, on design studio. But we've really done a disservice by treating all of the other classes as kind of throwaways. They're kind of like, I think a lot of schools treat them like, you know, we need them, we need them to stay accredited, but really you should just be focused on studio, right? Yep. And, and to, to, to yeah. prove that point, um, I believe that I was a good design student. My my roommate, um, he we we were going to one of those throwaway classes, right? Yeah. And he looked at whatever I was turning in, and he goes, he goes, man, when you care, you really care and do a good job, and when you don't care, you do crap. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, you just called my work crap, but I guess I'm good at studio, so yeah, right, exactly, exactly. And I think that's I think that's really that needs to change. Um, you know, I believe that our students could walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, I think that uh, just based on my experience, I think students want a more uh, uh, a bigger understanding. I think they want a little bit more of a real world understanding. Um, right now, I'm teaching a class called Integrative Design, um, where I'm working. I have you know, structural engineer coming in. I have a sustainability consultant coming into my studio class. Um, I have a detailing expert coming in, mechanical engineer coming in. Um, just, you know, look, our students are never going to have to, like, you know, school doesn't provide enough bandwidth or, or, uh, to fully uh, develop a project all the way through. But it is important that our students can understand that all of those things impact your design and that if you don't attend to those things, they will ultimately end up hamstringing the design and really holding you back from your expression. So that's really the focus of, of, of the experience uh, studio that I'm teaching. I just think we can take more of it. And business uh, is included, right? So it's a business space. I, I have a solution, but it's not, it might not be feasible, but I'll put it out there because yeah. maybe you'll you'll somehow make sense of this. So it was funny. One of our employees, um, 
he, you went to NDSU. I actually think it's a great school of, of architecture. I think it's practical yet hits the design market. I think uh, they do a great job of, uh, you know, they're in the middle of Fargo, but they fly students to different places, um, things like that. But he says, he said, I still contend that I learned more in one year here at this firm than four years at, or five years, whatever, at, at, at university. Um, and, and I know that to be true because I know what I learned and I know how much you can learn at a firm and how fast it can go. One of the major differences besides real world applications and, and all that, right, is even if you're at a bigger firm, midsize or larger, because I was at a, you know, 70 people, that's probably large size. Our, our um, project team had uh, like one lead and then two co-leads, right? And then there was probably like four of us under each co-lead. So like the feedback loop is like a one to four relationship. Now the problem though is you get a professor to have a studio. That professor has to lay out, hey, what are we doing here? All the ground rules and all that. Somehow you would need like four other adjuncts or other people to, to literally every week check in with those students and be like, okay, now we're going to do this detail. What about this thermal break right here? And the, the clash is probably actually going to come between the main professor and the other ones. And why it needs to be structured like that is because you can't have in a studio, you can't have five, you can't convince five other professionals to come up with a whole curriculum, to do all the grading and stuff like that. You could convince them to say, hey, once a week, you know, review the student and get into details and all that. Um, and then you got to pay them. But I mean, that's that's the difference is like, you've been working at firms like that, your boss looks over your project, redlines things, tells you specifically figure out this specific problem and come back to me. Um, so if you could just recreate that, somehow well, make it affordable. <laughs> make it affordable. I mean, I think one of the things that we're suffering from a little bit uh, of a hangover from is is our transition from an apprenticeship-based uh, profession to one that's largely taught now in schools. And I think there's some attitudes uh, that that's still uh, are still pervasive, right? So, for instance. You know, we do find a lot of schools that say, hey, you don't need to uh, worry about all that, you know, that thermal break you just mentioned. Oh, you know, all that stuff, you're going to learn that in the profession. So while we're in school, we're just going to do design with a cap big D, right? Yep. Well, the truth is, as somebody who's running a firm, we don't necessarily, we're not really set up to be teaching firms. We're set, you know, you know, the, the, you know, our profit margins are not robust that we can be like, hey, we can bring you along. And, you know, we're, we're, we're really trying to, to have people hit the ground running to the extent mm -hmm. possible, right? And be productive members of our teams right away. And so we still have this little bit of a chasm between the two. And, I, you know, and one of the things that I try to do with Emily is we're really trying to, to give students some of the things that they need so that they can hit the ground running, right? That they can land and be like, "Hey, we're, we're you know, we can we can be a, a productive part of the team on day one." Um, and I'll give you just a tiny example. Like uh, I spoke to a firm leader uh, maybe about a year ago, and I was telling her how every student at Dunwoody gets a laptop fully loaded with all the software. It's part of the tuition. You know, they get Bluebeam. They get she goes Bluebeam. Wow, she's like, 
she's like, she said, I hired somebody the other day and they had, they had no idea what Rubin was. And I said, well, you know, that's one of the things. Like if we, well, one of the things that we did is we thought, well, if people are using it in industry, we should at least expose our students to it in the classroom. So it's not, I mean, Bluebeam, there's nothing sophisticated about Bluebeam, right? Right. Uh, but it's it's one of the tools of the trade. We feel like you should know what the tools of the trade are. So that when you get out there, you're not working from a deficit. You can just jump right in. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. Um, I love this discussion. Um, thanks. Thanks for everything. Is there any topic that... Uh, you want to make sure we touch on and is there any sort of if, if any students are listening anyone thinking about being the profession or anyone who wants to reach out where should they go um to get a hold of you or, or the college right so you know uh i'm you know i'm t-bullen at dunwoody.edu but uh you can find my information on dunwoody.edu um, website you can check us out we have actually a really great uh online bachelor of architecture uh degree program. Um, so I, I do know that it's a bit of a challenge for some folks who um, you know who are maybe already working and want to get their accredited degree. We have something called stackable degree, which if you have an associate's degree in uh, from like a local community college, you can then stack on that last three years um, and get you back to architecture. And that has been a really a powerful route uh, for a lot of people. Uh, I think it's 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 unique. I think we're the only ones doing it. Um, that's cool. But I think, you know, just my general advice for folks who are like either getting out there or maybe just starting their own firms or thinking about starting their own firms, I would say, and you can probably speak to this as well, is that, you know, sometimes look at the path less trodden, right? You know, my decision to go back to Grenada, like a lot of my friends in New York at the time were like, you'll be back in three months. Like, you know, like, you know, yep, because yep. again, their, their, their framework was like, you know, the framework was New York. And so, you know, I can tell you, it, it would have been a lot, lot harder for me to have been successful and have my own firm in New York uh, yeah. than it was, right? And yeah. so every firm in the world is in New York. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, really, if, if you're thinking about it, there the opportunities lie the margins where, where other people are, maybe aren't looking. Um, that's where you'll find those opportunities. Um, and so I'd always encourage people to try to think a little bit outside the box. It can, it can be very easy to, to, to just focus in on, on, you know, on, on sort of the shiny objects. Great advice. Thank you, Trevor. I appreciate it. And I know our listeners will as well. Alex, I appreciate talking to you. It was fun.